Welcome to Points of Change. We are live broadcasting at the moment and I am being joined today by one of my favorite people to speak to because she just knows so much about stuff that I really love, which is neuroscience. Her name is Lauren Walburn. She is known as the Learning Pirate. You're going to get to meet her in a bit. If you're able to join us live on the show and you have questions for, for Lauren about the latest neuroscience developments in terms of learning and understanding, post them in the chat box. Maybe we can get to them. And if you can join us, uh, even if you're on the replay, I hope you'll enjoy the show. Uh, I've spoken to Lauren before. She's incredible. She knows her stuff. And uh, we're going to have a really interesting chat. We'll see you in a moment after the titles. Welcome to Points of Change with Johnny Ball, the show where week by week I will be chatting with coaches, trainers, mentors, experts, visionaries, change makers, people with amazing transformational stories and experiences, and people who are helping others to create transformation in their lives. Stay tuned and make sure you subscribe. Don't miss an episode. So hello, Lauren. Good morning from Toronto. <laughs> it's really good to be speaking with you. It's, uh, it's the middle of the afternoon for me. I, I've learned my lesson about not having my lunch before I do afternoon recordings because I've done several episodes recently where my stomach was rumbling audibly on the microphone. It's not good. So we're, I think we're all good for today. Really? I was about to give you my first tip then is um, hide a high calorie smoothie in a coffee mug. <laughs> oh, that is such a good idea. <laughs> and then I'm hope that your teeth won't turn blue while you're talking. <laughs> I'm definitely going to do that. I'm definitely going to do that. I love it. Uh, so thank you. That's a great point. Now, today we are talking, oh, all my boxes have disappeared for some reason. Today we are talking about neuroscience in terms of learning and development. And so, um, that's what I want to get onto you. You're such an expert with this stuff. I'm sure there's been some new stuff since we last spoke. And so maybe that's a good place to start. What are some of the latest things coming out in terms of understanding for learning and development in neuroscience? So, I mean, there's so every single, I mean, even as I'm speaking right now, there are scientists and you know academics and researchers who are finding more and more out about the brain that is influencing what we can do in the world of learning and development. Um, and it's really funny because something that I was working on that I've been working on for some time, um, and this is the, you know, the beauty and the destruction of working within the world of science is that one moment you have it sorted and it's correct. And the other moment, it's all changed <laughs> and you got to go back and you got to redesign. So one of those um, pieces that I've been working on recently is on attention and focus. And I think previously, and there's still more research to be done. Um, this research that I have just explored is from MIT from, um, I think his name is Michael Halassas. And uh, it's really interesting because there's so many different attentional networks in the brain. It's not just, you know, we focus and we can pay attention to something and it's just one area. Um, there is a prominent area, the prefrontal cortex, right at the front, which manages a lot of our higher uh, executive functions. And it has, you know, historically been thought that a lot of that attention and focus is being redirected to this part of the brain. Whereas it was sort of looked at like the flashlight, right? It's like you could put a mm. flashlight on something and that's how we focus. This new research, <laughs> which I love absolutely so much, uh, it's now saying, well, maybe we had that a little bit backwards. And, and instead of it being like a searchlight sort of metaphor, that maybe the light, the brain wasn't brightening the light on, on that, but it was actually dimming the lights everywhere else. So 
there's, like I said, there's so many different networks of attention, but this one in particular had to do with filtering and focusing. Mm. So how do we translate that? It really does show us then that when we are designing learning, when we have this information, I'm not going to get into, you know, into too much scientific technicalities. Like, you know, we've got a visual thalamus, we've got the auditory thalamus. These are the places that are helping us, you know, obviously see things and take in things auditorily. But then there's a piece in between all of those that is helping to sort of, I'm going to say kind of acts like the border, if you will. Like when you go to immigration and they decide whether or not you're going to get in, that's kind of what this piece is doing because it's suppressing uh, the flow of visual information. Okay. So that means that other signals can be sort of brightened up. So that to me is like, it blew my mind. I'm like, of course, of course. Why didn't we think that it's not just about focusing and putting the flashlight on something we want to give our attention to, but it's also about dimming the rest of the senses. And now we know that there are there's specific networks in the brain that are doing that and that we could tap into. Um, it also obviously is going to influence the way that we design learning. Mm, that's that's interesting. So I know when I first started learning about accelerated learning, I learned a lot of stuff that I've since learned isn't true. And a lot of that I've learned from you. <laughs> that some, of, <laughs> some of this stuff uh, that gets taught as accelerated learning is kind of BS and uh, not just kind of, it really is. Uh, and has been proven to be the case um, was there might be quite useful things. And a lot of it's still being taught. I guess if, if the information that is not correct doesn't catch up with people, you know, uh, it can take a while to disseminate the, what what the latest information and updates are. But it, it was it was really funny that I think after the last time we did an episode, I recorded another show and somebody was talking about some of the things that we had talked about and you were debunking. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I really want to say something. <laughs> I really want to say something. Uh, but I, I remember, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm going to um, struggle to remember the name of the guy who uh, was sort of, famous for uh, I think it's like Lazimov or something like that uh, you may maybe know better than I do but um, this is someone who was talking about multi-sensory learning as being one mm. of the keys to accelerated learning and mm. it seems that you're saying the opposite of that is true it so multi-sensory learning I mean it, it really comes down to the efficiency and the effectiveness of design so there is only so much that our brains can do energetically. And there's only so much that it, we can ask of it in any one given amount of time. So our working memory is, is, is limited. You know, it doesn't have, you know, we can't just dump everything in there. Like we were historically taught in schools, you know, sit for what, 45 minutes to an hour to learn math or history, geography is just not the way that it works in there. So when we know that our, our working memory and our cognitive load is limited, then adding in more resources from the brain. Like if we're saying we want, we've got visual stimuli, auditory stimuli, I'm speaking at you, I'm asking you to read something. We're engaging more parts of the brain at once, which means that it's, you're using up more energy. So the efficiency isn't really there. So it, you can almost tie this back to the attention and the focus, which is when we're going into learning and you can sort of look at your content and look at it, what it is that you really need people to draw their attention to, because attention is the mechanism to focus. Right. So if attention is the mechanism to focus, where are you guiding people's attention to? And if it's too many resources and too many stimuli, then you're just draining the brain of its energy and its resources to be able to focus. Mm. But it, it makes sense. What I want to ask, though, I mean, 
as someone who's in the world of online course creation and, uh, and, and events as well, what I'm hearing from other course creators or really the people who teach course creation to people for online courses um, is that everyone's making their content shorter, like as shorter mm -hmm. chunks of information as possible, as guided as possible, as much like hand holding through it as possible. Is this all the right way to go? And is this in line with the research that you're aware of? I mean, break, chunking, you know, the, the methodologies of, of chunking is, is, is incredibly, you know, valuable and useful because like I said, like if you're utilizing the resources that you've got to the best of your, your knowledge and ability, then it is better to, to, you know, package it a lot. You know, you, you can package it in one of two ways. You can either package it as, as a smaller piece of content. So, you know, um, there's a doctor, Dr. ETL drawer who, who had a phenomenal, um, example of the game of Jenga which is if you look at your content as a one big game of Jenga, if you started pulling blocks out, does the learning collapse? If it doesn't, then you can probably keep taking things out until you've really zoned in on the attention and the focus. Now, that being said, course creators, what I think where we all miss out on, myself included, is we don't get to decide how somebody engages with our learning once it's on their side of the screen. Right. So. If they're only engaging with it once and once only, well, then it doesn't matter how long it is. They're probably not, you know, they might be learning something very short term, but are they encoding memory for the long term? Probably not because that takes a longer process. So you can, you know, for as far as like chunking down the, the content to smaller bite-sized pieces, yes, it's, it makes it a lot more manageable for someone. But if you're not designing in triggers or cues or something later on to maintain the habit of them coming back to it for a you know to encode a memory then it doesn't really matter yeah yeah with uh, I want a good friend of mine martin he's uh, he's uh, definitely an expert in terms of course creation and stuff and one of the things he's been guiding me to think about in terms of course creation is making sure that these that regular emails are going out after segments of uh uh, of a program to check mm -hmm. in. Hey, did you watch the segment? Uh, did you see this bit? You know, the bit of like, uh, this is what's in this chunk that the next the, the next drip part of the feed for you to watch. And uh, you know, having that sort of follow up is is that essential? Is that kind of what you mean by uh, getting that engagement to keep them going through? I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is we don't get to as much as I would love to do, you know, when a course starts, you know, people become instantly motivated <laughs> to come back and, you know, to continue their learning journey. And, you know, but, um, you know, email triggers, yeah, they're, they're great as a reminder, but it's really the embedding of, of how you're designing the learning. You know, and that's where I really focus in on is how do we design the learning for more efficiency and effectiveness, you know, for the encoding process of the brain. So I think when we talk about, you know, learning, it's not just learning, it's learning and memory. Right. Learning, you know, if you haven't remembered if the brain can encode it or retrieve it, then you haven't really learned it, you know, to, to a permanency that you can continue to use it. And then it's a matter of, you know, especially if you're looking for a skill or a behavior, um, depending on the skill, it might not take as long as others, if it's like a motor skill, or maybe it's, it's some, something else that you have to do. It's really, there is no set time per se for how long it could, it could take someone to learn. That being said, we know that to see visible changes and structural changes in the brain, 
you do need that repetition. You do need sleep intervals because memory is consolidated while we are sleeping and it does take time. So if you are putting a course out there and you think that, you know, and I, with my courses and with, I, with every conference and to anyone watching right now, you're going to learn nothing from me today. Nothing. <laughs> I put that right out there. You know, I, I, I get onto a stage to a, you know, thousands of people I go, you're going to learn nothing. <laughs> Enjoy the ride, you know, chase your curiosity, but it just doesn't work that way um, when it comes to how we encode memory. So, uh, you know, that's kind of the, the long, the long answer, you know, the short answer to a longer question, but yeah. There's, there's so many ways that we can engage our learners to bring them back to help them encode. You, you know that I, I love this area and I'm certainly not as deep into it as you, but I love reading about it. And uh, and I, I remember one of the books, I think this is from one of the books that I read a while back, it certainly sticks in my brain as being uh, a book called Harry Learn by Benedict Carey. I don't know if you, mm -hmm. you know that book. I know um, it, I haven't read it, I'm going to admit that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah uh, it doesn't matter that you haven't read it but one of the things that he talks about in in that book is is this thing about making sure that you test what you learn so he talks about the review thing he does actually talk about the sleep thing as well um mm -hmm. uh, and i'm sure there are probably uh, a lot of developments since since that book came out that you know if he was doing a new version he would maybe maybe he will revise that book um mm -hmm. but um that testing was a really great way to make sure that you are actually remembering the information. Would, would you say that's a good tool to bring into course creation? I mean, it depends. Testing, yeah. I mean, any type of, of sort of modality that allows people to retrieve the information to see if you've even learned it, it it's if you're not inserting that into your courses, then, you know, you're really leaving learning to chance or the, not, it's again, not even the learning it's the memory encoding. So whether or not you're using, you know, a, a formalized test, or if you're, you know, putting in activities, some way that the learner can see whether or not they've actually absorbed and whether or not they still have skill gaps. So there's multiple ways to do that. And I say, you know, I even take it sort of a step before. So I am a massive advocate for obtaining the skills of metacognition, which is enabling people to think about their own cognitive processes. So can you think about what you are thinking about, which is like just a mind, you know, it does your head and just to even say that. Yeah. But when you have that ability, it can work on two levels on the side of the person doing the learning. It's their ability to say, I'm not actually sure that I get that. Okay, I'm going to go revisit that. But having that dialogue within your own narrative before you move on, because I think typically people will go through an entire day of learning or training or, you know, however long they're doing it, get to the end, try to implement something and realize, oh, I don't really know that. Okay, I'm going to go back to that video or I'm going to go back to that document. I'm going to quickly look up what I need to know and then I'm going to, I'll put it in there. So they're not really learning it. They're just training themselves <laughs> to know where it is in a document or, you know, in the course. <laughs> So, so this brings, I think this brings us to what's the difference between the difference in levels of learning? So, not up here. Don't worry, make yourself comfortable. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, so, in terms of like levels of learning, you know, I, I talk about this sometimes on, uh, especially when I talk about book learning. And so, I, I do probably three or four audiobooks a week. Um, I am that addicted to them and um, and other reading on top of that from my Kindle or you know, physical books, whatever. Um, so it's a lot of learning. Yeah. But I know that there are, like, for example, uh, there would be books like 
uh, just familiarize myself with that I maybe get some value from and, and uh, but, uh, a week or so later it's like what was that <laughs> what was what's yeah. talking about there was something in that book and and I can't come back to it you know whilst I'm reading it's all hey, it's great and this is really good information and maybe I'm getting some connections and realizations but then a week or so later is like, I can't even remember most of what was yeah. in the book and but there are some books and it's like this information is so amazing I know that if I only get that I will initially listen to or read a book three times um if if I think this is really really valuable I need I need to know this stuff right. uh, but even then you know I'm not going to remember all of it after that so what is the difference in terms of you know I can familiarize myself with it I can get a bit more of it but how do I really know stuff so and this is something that I mean I struggle with as as well I think we all do and it's again so let's take you know the the premise of, of the book most of us will read we can get to the bottom of a page and we couldn't tell you what was happening at the top <laughs> so again how are we monitoring ourselves as we are going through that process, right? So I've now learned it might take me longer to read that book, but if I really want to absorb, then I'm not going to just, I'm first of all, I'm going to chunk out my reading time as well. So I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to like designate myself to this particular chapter and I go back, I reference, I, I'm, taking, I'm taking notes, I'm taking page references as well. I'm one of those people, it's my book, so I write in it. I know that's like a cardinal sin to some people. <laughs> no, no, I, I write in, well, not in fiction books, but in nonfiction, I certainly do, yeah. Yeah, and for, well, most of what I read is, is research or, you know, even so like if you, if you were to see, you know, any one of the white papers that are, you know, scattered across my floor at any time, they are just littered with, notes or um, pictures, I take, you know, condensed notes that will show me how I can, I'll do the page reference, but then I split my page up. So I've got the page reference, a quick reminder as far as the language. And sometimes I'll just draw myself a quick picture. So I'm helping myself encode what I really want to remember that little bit more by triggering it and going, oh, right. Okay. That picture was associated with this particular thing, you know, this particular method or theory. So it's really, you got to manage you, right? You got to understand, like, I think when we get so absorbed in a book, it's because we were motivated and we're interested and we're curious, but then what's your purpose of reading or listening to the audio? Do you want to learn something or do you just want to be really engaged with it? And it goes with any type of learning. It, it, you know, do you really want to learn and remember something from it or do you just want to have fun and, and engage with it? Yeah. I, I think probably like everybody, I have different reasons for reading different books. Sometimes it is a bit just sort of entertaining. Sometimes it's just, oh, it could be useful information, but it's not stuff I need to know inside and out. Uh, but it might just give me a few pointers or something, uh, a direction to go in or trigger a few thoughts. And sometimes that's what I want. Um, but sometimes I do come across things. In fact, quite often, <laughs> there's plenty of really good books out there. I will come across stuff that's like, this is stuff that I really want to know as well as possible. Mm -hmm. um, but even then, you know, the, even then I have to categorize that into what's the stuff that I have to know from what I do professionally that is just like the, um, what do you want, the classics, the sort of canon of the, of the area that you're in that you need to know. If you're going to call yourself an expert in this area, you should know these people and their information. Um, yeah. So I'd say people like uh, Robert Cialdini's um, influence and persuasion is like if you don't if you're doing if you're teaching influence and persuasion skills and you don't really know that 
You're like, well, there's a big chunk of information that's missing for it. If you don't know or understand uh, Aristotle's rhetoric, you know, there's a huge chunk that you think you probably shouldn't be calling yourself an expert in this area. So, um, so those sorts of things like, well, yeah, you, I feel actually you have to know that stuff inside and out. A few other yeah. things are on top of that. And so I, I will regularly revisit them, regularly review them and check, check myself on the knowledge. One of the things that I've used to help me do that is like if I, if I get to those things that I want to know really, really well, I will do a talk or a presentation about it. Yeah, yeah. Because that forces me to have to pull that information together. And it's like when they say, if you want to really learn something, teach it, right? Okay. I mean, it's kind of yeah. that sort of principle. Yeah, no, and it's a great one. It's an absolute great one. I mean, everything for me when it comes to learning can be an experiment, right? With the, with the air of caution. So reteaching something to somebody else is an incredible way to do it. I say when you're doing that, though, you have to be incredibly, depending on what it is, right? Like, I mean, the information that I hand out is highly sensitive, you know, when we're talking about the brain and it can be used in a, you know, if I don't translate it accurately and if I'm not 100% confident in the way that I'm delivering that to other people, then that misinterpretation can do a lot more harm than good. Right. So, you know, it's that point of, Teaching other people is an incredibly, you know, it's not only satisfying, but you're right, it's a great way to encode learning. That being said, use the metacognitive skills before you even get to that stage to go, do I really know this? And then how are you going to challenge yourself to know if you really know this or not? So like we can circle back, like, are you going to test yourself? Are you going to use cue cards? Are you going to get someone who has more expertise in the subject matter and get validation, which is what I do? You know, I take all of the, you know, it takes me about, depending on the size of the paper, you know, two to three days to really decode a scientific paper that has to do, let's say, with um, memory memory retrieval in varying areas, of the, you know, the, in the hippocampus or, you know, emotional connectivity to the prefrontal cortex and cognitive ability. Like those are huge. Like it just sounds nerdy, right? So, you know, it's going to be hard. <laughs> right. And it's then going through, taking those notes like, like I was talking about, trying to get my own understanding of it, but then going to somebody who's got more knowledge than I do and saying, have I done this correct? Am I correct? Because there is no test for that, right? So you have to know where it is that you can go to make sure that your information and your learning is validated. And I think that's an incredibly important piece is that we can give people all the learning in the world, but then what we find, and this is like very well researched in metacognitive studies, is that we as humans, we either highly overestimate or underestimate our abilities. Right. Dunning Kruger, which, yeah. Yeah. So that means that, okay, I either really think that I know what I know and I'm overconfident, or I actually doubt what I know, but I actually do know it. So how do we actually embed these like sort of, you know, tests or like feedback or whatever it looks like, how do we embed that or have the the sort of self-awareness to be able to go seek out the clarity and the validation before we go and teach others? It's it's uh it's a really fascinating area, and uh, well, for for people who are interested, it's a fascinating area. Uh, so some people might listen to this thing. Oh, what are we talking about? Is that? But if you are interested in learning and being a better learner, or you're interested in teaching, I think you need to be paying attention to to these sorts of things right now. I, I'm curious though. I mean, one of the things I do find benefit in just. Uh, passing acquaintance with certain bits of knowledge and information yeah. that I don't need to know it really well sometimes. Mm. Uh, 
but just having a, an introduction to it, even if I'm not going to remember it a bit later, it just maybe fits in with some stuff or uh, things to add to the general sort of sense of knowledge. And I probably will take a, maybe a few bits will stick in my memory, uh, but certainly not a whole book's worth. Um, but it can really add to the conversations that you have. It can expand mm. the things that you could talk about. It can make connections with some other things that you're doing. Uh, it fits into the net, into the sort of mental network in a in a bit of a different way to me. Even things like uh, Blinkist, you know, Blinkist, where they have these sort of uh, they summarize books into about ten yeah. minutes worth of information. Uh, I know that I do know people who utilize that instead of reading books, which to me kind of sucks is like you you must be missing so much like if every book could just be 10 minutes long there would be no <laughs> there'd be no need for all the rest of it so clearly there is other stuff in the book that like sets context and maybe puts things into uh, but you're also relying on that the, the person who is putting the blink together is actually pulling out the most pertinent bits of information from the book because maybe yeah. they're not yeah and so, i'm so it's interesting and I'm not going to, I'm not going to say who, who the author of the book is because I love and respect them so much, but I'm reading, I'm reading their book. It is full of like such valuable, amazing information and, and then interwoven are all of these. And again, the researcher in me is looking at this and going, there's all these great stories, but I'm not interested in the stories. I want the hard learning. I want the hard fact, right? <laughs> so I haven't actually engaged with Blinkist. I know of it. It's like the, you know, the Coles Notes version, <laughs> uh, you know, the side, those little books that we all used to get in high school when we didn't want to read Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but again, it, I think it really does come down to what is it that you want to get out of it? If you're only taking the highlights, then what are you missing that led up to that? Was, you know, and again, if you're, if you're looking at things that are non-scientific or like nothing that is methodology, you know, theory or method or whatnot, then maybe it's okay. But if you're playing around with something that you're going to start implementing into your own work, into your own learning, into your own life, you probably want a little bit of more, <laughs> more back into that. You need yeah. contextual relevance. Yeah. So would, would you say, I mean, to come back to the course creation in particular, do you really have to kind of get into right away why it's important to learn this to try and get the motivation up for people who are who are following the course? I think that's on the owner. You know, I think it's it's both sides, right? There's ownership on the course creator to understand who it is that they're you know they're catering towards and what it is that they you know what is the purpose of the learning and what's the mem you know what are the memories that you want them to take away to support that. But on the other side, of course, it's on the ownership of the learner. So you know in in a individual setting where you can choose and you, you you've got that motivation to engage and, and chase your own curiosities that's one side you go into organizations when learning is being mandated and the motivation is completely different right no one likes to be told that they have to do something sure. <laughs> so, sure. so now we're looking at a completely different different beast of of you know how do we keep people motivated well we actually don't we can help and we can sort of point out the the whys, if you will. But at the end of the day, we don't have the magic wand that we can go tap onto everyone's, you know, 45,000 people in an organization and be like, you're all gonna behave really changed today because <laughs> we need you to, or because something in our internal culture changed. It doesn't work like that. So um, yeah, I mean, two, side, two sides of the coin. We can, we can definitely design to show people the value and to put in that in our narratives and the messages and to make it contextually relevant, 
But that also takes a lot of intentionality, right? And when you're designing for, you know, if you're if you're a course creator and you're putting something up that's going to be seen by thousands, millions of people globally, you don't necessarily have that luxury. Right. You know, you don't know, you don't know what that is. We can only do the best of what we can do and just be like, you know, when I'm when I'm designing a course, when I'm designing my own content, I've got a lot of good messages in there, which is like, if you Netflix this. You're not going to learn anything. Go for it. Enjoy it. Binge watch all you want. <laughs> you won't learn anything. You know, there's a way to facilitate the learning as your course creating that guides people into the proper usage of your material. Right. So should you should a course creator, if, if they have an opportunity, always drip the content rather than create that opportunity for binge? So... Well, anyone can binge if they want to. I think that's, you know, they, they can if they want to. So, and I'm, you know, even like I said, I'm really well aware of that. So my narrative is, is that this, I, and I give an explanation, right? I'm like, I'm not just asking you. So it's like, if I ask you to join in an experiment or if I'm saying, come, you know, if something seems a little unusual to you, okay, first, that's great. Cause we want learning to feel that little bit of, you know, discomfort because it, it's something's new then your brain's going to go, ooh, don't know about this, right? Like, I'm not so sure. So I want that. But I'm also narrating the facilitation of it. So I have designed this with intention and purpose because, and I'm telling my learners, this is why this is the way it is. I'm not just dumping content on them and saying, go for it. Do this activity. Watch this video. Go talk to a friend. Get into a chat room. Be on the community. But why? Why have I intentionally put these things into this course to help you? I can't decide right. what your why is, but I can tell you what mine is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the best we can hope to do is, is stir the motivation and, and set things in place, as you say, that uh, hopefully do encourage and, and seem to be the right things to do. Um, but you can never guarantee uh, end user responsiveness, uh, unfortunately. Right. Right. But one, one thing one thing that I do know is that even in the world of online courses and the likes, still the vast majority of people who buy these things never even start and certainly don't complete them. Yeah. Uh, are you kind of aware of those statistics and uh, do you have any sort of insight on that? That's actually it's really interesting. So I don't have the stats, but um, the current research that I'm doing, um, I've sort of gone over to the behavioral sciences now as well. Um, to just do, to really sort of look more deeply into the behaviors of learning. And it really has to do with, you know, learning in that context when we, we were so highly motivated, we click on, we sign up, we give our money or, you know, we're in our organization. We're like, yes, I'm going to learn this because it's going to make this job so much better. And then the habit isn't formed. So you can have really high motivation at the beginning. And you might, you know, download everything that you need and then you just forget about it entirely. <laughs> so I think it has to do, and this is, again, um, I can't speak too much on it because I'm still learning this myself, but it really does have to do with the three factors of your motivation and, you know, your motivation and your ability. So, and are you forming a habit around your own learning? And what does that look like, right? So... Mm -hmm. This is something I'm really interested in right now is in the behavioral science of habit formation, because obviously we have very firm beliefs and behaviors around learning because of the way that we were brought into it and, and probably through our, throughout our you know, times in various educational institutions. But then there's a matter of creating the habit of learning. 
And I think that's something that is, I'm really excited to, to further explore and then to start integrating into the work that I do. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's, uh, it's an interesting area. You know, I, I've, uh, I think when I very first, you know, I talked about the sort of very first learning of accelerated learning sort of stuff uh, and how much of it was probably pretty much rubbish and has been debunked since then. But um, one of the things I think that would have to get said, and I don't know if it definitely came from that, but it was certainly in, in with those sorts of things was that it takes uh, something like 15 days to form a new habit or other people say it takes 30 days to form a new habit, which has always seemed to me to be kind of bullshit and and not really <laughs> not really the case. Is is there any sort of that what you come across so far? I really don't say uh, to give any guidance to how long habit forming does take, or is it really state dependent and individual dependent? As so, I suspect it might be. <laughs> yeah, it, it is right because there's so many. I mean, so I would highly to, to anyone who's watching this, um, who I or watching it later, I would highly recommend you look at the the work of BJ Fogg. And he has a book called Tiny Habits. He is a brilliant Stanford professor who had, um, I think at this point, probably over, you know, I'm not sure if it's 40,000 or something, absolutely like a, you know, a ridiculous amount of people who he is, um, you know, taught in this methodology of tiny habits. And I think when it comes to habit, what I've learned from, from BJ is that, and it's it, it's so crazy because everything that we learn from the sciences, when we then say it and we like deconstruct it, it's like, oh gosh, that seems so intuitive. Like, of course that makes so much sense, <laughs> but it's about breaking things down into things that we can actually do. And then we have the ability to do it. Mm. So do we have the, you know, do we have the motivation? Motivation is very hard to anchor a habit in, right? Because it's like, everyone's got a different scheme of motivation, but can yeah. what BJ says it goes into is where do you then stand on your ability? And I love that. How can we make it easier for ourselves to create a habit and what I love is one of the, the examples that he gives. And one of the ones that he first experimented on himself was with flossing. You know, most people don't like, you know, there's some people who are like religious flossers and they enjoy it. They love their dental hygiene. I'm not one of them. <laughs> and he, he wasn't <laughs> so he took that and said, you know, I'm not motivated to do this, but I have the ability to do this. So how do I make it easier? And the way that he did that is like, he set his goal. I'm going to floss one tooth one tooth only just so I can start to create the behavior in the habit. So, or maybe that, that first step is I'm just going to buy dental floss. That's my first step. And then celebrate that fact because those are the small pieces that will, you know, then become the larger. And again, I'm not, I'm, I'm so excited because I think I'm actually speaking with him and, um, you know, integrating more of the behavioral sciences into the work that we do to understand the behaviors, um, the beliefs, you know, because we've all, you know, culturally, we, I think we've, most of us have seen a very similar educational upbringing, but how did that shape our habits and our behaviors around the way that we learn and how we continue to do it? And is it necessarily, you know, is it helping us or is it hurting us? So definitely something I'm excited to bring into the narrative, but I mean, I, with, with BJ's methodology, I started, I've, I've been experimenting on myself for the last two weeks. It works. I can create a habit in one to two days, depending on how challenge, you know, on how motivated I am, on how easy I've made it for myself and the ability and the time that I've got to do it. So, you know, it was like jogging. I don't like jogging, <laughs> but 
we're in a pandemic. I can't go to the gym. I'm, I've got to find other ways of engaging. Am I going to start by like signing up, you know, signing up for like a 5k, 10k, like, you know, jogging club? No, <laughs> I'm not, but I can jog, you know, three, I say, like, I look at the sidewalk, the sidewalk squares and I'm like, I can jog three of those. Okay. Good job. And just keep building up from there. Yeah. I, I think I got, um, it was from Jim Quick. I don't know if you're familiar with Jim Quick. I am. Okay. Uh, so you can feel free to share any opinions on that. But um, one thing I got from watching an interview with him, and I'm dubious of some of his stuff, I will say that up front. Uh, but I did try this thing where he was suggesting to um, try brushing your teeth with your non-dominant hand as a way of... Um, as a way of creating a new habit and and taking yourself out of your normal way of doing things as a proof to yourself that you can do that and make it a habit, which, which I have done. I thought it was an interesting experiment to do. Have I felt benefits from it? Maybe, I, I, I don't know. I think I've been more disciplined in general since doing that, but I don't know if that's why. Um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts that you're willing to share on this. I've tried. So, I mean, I like to play with that world of omni dexterity. Um, you know, it's funny because two years ago, right before, oh, I'll never forget this, right before I had to go to, to a very large conference to speak, I broke, um, I broke the, the thumb on my dominant hand, on my right hand. And then I realized how, you know, how really important thumbs are because <laughs> all of a sudden I couldn't, you know, I couldn't brush my teeth. I couldn't curl my hair. I couldn't do, do it, my jacket or anything. So I had no choice, but to, but to use my, my left hand. And so that whole brushing teeth thing. Okay. First of all, if you haven't done it with your non-dominant hand, you're going to be brushing your cheek for like a good, like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I have an electric brush, so thankfully that didn't end up being the case. But. So I love it as a way to, um, to to stimulate a different activation in your brain and and to sort of use different pathways and to create different pathways. I love that because you know what we see, especially when it comes to um, to ailments, and this is why neuro you know why neuroplasticity and uh, synaptic plasticity is so important is when there's a deficit in one part of the brain when we as we see um, whether it be in stroke patients or you know when there's a lesion somewhere, there are cases where the brain can reallocate resources to its counterpart on the other hemisphere and it can start working, right? So we can start we can learn how to work with our non-dominant hand which is just crazy and amazing because we're creating the neural pathways to allow us, excuse me, to do that more effectively. As far as, you know, the correlation to it becoming a habit, I can't speak to that. Um, I'd say it's a fun experiment. Anything that you want to try, like it's always a fun experiment, but I'm, as far as the efficacy of the neural pathways and sort of like learning, training your brain to be able to do things with that side yeah it's a great experiment and like it's just another way to really engage and challenge your brain which i think is always a wonderful thing like learning something new and keeping the brain at your brain is meant to learn you know it keeps us alive because it's continually navigating everything around us like if a 
you know, if a wrecking ball were to come through or my wall right now, my brain would instantly, <laughs> it would like do everything it could to keep me alive right now. So, you know, training it in multiple different ways, always, you know, it's always fun to do that and to keep it stimulated. Yeah. I, I, to, to me, it makes very little difference whether I, uh, to, to any outcomes, whether I brush my teeth with my left hand or my right hand, but um, the practice has become habitual. I don't think about it. It just, it's just what I do now uh, because I've yeah. been doing it for so long. Uh, if the benefits of it are that I've become more disciplined as a result, great. Thank you, Jim Crick. If that had nothing to do with it, well, either way, it's not done any harm. <laughs> but it's been uh, it's been interesting to sort of go down that path. Uh, I do wonder if there's an element of su suggestibility on that. Just like if you tell someone this is going to make you more disciplined and you do it, it's like, well, okay, you're doing that thing and you think, I'm doing this, so I must be being more disciplined now. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I, the, the honest answer is I don't know. It, it seems to have had that effect on me. Um, that's what seems to have happened. Those are my results, but they are anecdotal. That's all. Yeah. Uh, not the most scientific of experiments. Well, I mean, I would challenge that to say it's like if you think that doing that has made you more disciplined, then it becomes a matter of if you believe that you have now got that behavior ingrained in you, transfer it. Yeah. Can you transfer it? You know, if I think I've become more disciplined in this area of my life and so let me see if I can transfer it into another area. So if the goal was discipline, are you now just like really well conditioned to brush your teeth with your opposite hand? <laughs> or... No, I, I've been I've been finding myself being more disciplined in my in my daily life. Uh, but I, I know how much of that was because of that and how much of it was just because I set the intention and started taking action on being more disciplined. I, I couldn't tell you. Uh, maybe nobody could. It's probably an unanswerable question, but that, that's where things have gone. Uh, so, yeah, I think it has sort of transferred uh, even unintentionally. But then yeah. we, we, it was something that I wanted. Um, but what I do, what I do want to ask you, you do work with people on helping them create courses and make them as, as, you know, as good as possible with the latest research. Mm -hmm. What what are the things you maybe commonly still see people getting wrong when they're putting constructing courses for people? Mm. So. I always say that as a as a, a sort of a designer and an architect of, of learning, it's it's our part of our role is to to not only you know feed the brain but to protect it, and so you know that kind of comes back and circles back to you know the overwhelming amounts of content that are being are being trying to, you know that people are trying to get in there, um, and then the way that it is organized, right? So. If you, you know, there, there's sort of two camps. You can either like the Jenga example, take out the blocks, does it fall apart? Or if you absolutely must have all that content in there, can you package it to be more helpful for the brain to not to be too overwhelmed? Can you redirect attention? So I'd say, you know, some of the, the things like that, that I've seen are you're throwing in way too much content um, in too short of, you know, in too short of a time. So you might have said, oh, yeah, I'm going to micro I'm going to put a micro learning together or a nano learning together. And it's only going to be five minutes, but I am going to load as much as I can into that five minutes possible. Then and then what? So overuse of content. Um, and then it's also, like I said, not managing the cognitive load. I think that people want to. Um, they want things to look a lot of like, they want them to look really sexy and like fun and they want them to be engaging. So they add in all these colors and different fonts and music and, and, you know, gifts and everything that you could possibly imagine, right. but you're completely distracting from the fact 
of what you're wanting someone to learn or what you're trying to help somebody learn. So it's utilizing, again, you're overwhelming the cognitive load, which means the working memory is just like, it's just going to be full way faster. So you got to start to scale back and really protect that, right? And then the other thing that I see is that when you're not designing with like absolute strategic intention, then you just have content going all over the place. You know, you want to talk about, you know, real estate. You want to teach people how to get into the real estate market. And you're just like, you know, everything that you could possibly do, you you do your own brain dump onto someone else's screen or page or whatever, without being incredibly intentional and focused on what it is. What are those real learning? Like, what do you want someone to remember? That's the end goal here. What do you want them to remember? Do you want it to become an unconscious habit where mastery means that they can perform or do without even thinking about it anymore? like walking, you know, we don't think about, you know, we don't think about how we get up and stand up and walk anymore. It's an unconscious, it's, it's already been programmed in there. We can do it. There's, and even when you look at your daily lives, we have embedded so many habits that we don't even realize, you know, our morning routines, those are habits. So when it comes to those things, it's, it's, do you want to create long-term change? Are you looking for a long-term learning, long-term memory, or are you looking for short-term training? And that's okay too. If you just need someone to know something for a small amount of time or like a one-time engagement, that's okay, but you're going to design it differently. I'd still say stick to the principles of not like overwhelming the brain, you know, don't like pack it up too much, but I mean, it is a different design and there is a different way to go about it. But, you know, I'd say those are the major things I would love for people to get out of this is first, be very cautious of the amount of content that you're trying to cram into someone's brain. It can get very tired very quick. Um, space it out. Give, you know, those, I, I very rarely see embedded into learning these days opportunities for the, um, for that feedback. It's, you know, where is that feedback being embedded and how are we not just testing, you know, multiple choice, ABC, but how are we actually, you know, letting the learners see whether or not through an activity or through something like that's very, again, strategic and well-pointed to the context, have you actually learned it? Or do you just think that you have learned it? Which right. one is it? So, I mean, there's so many things I can go on and on about when it comes to like, you know, all of this, yeah. you know, you've got, you know, how are you using emotions? How are you using the environment? You know, for such a long time, I, it was, we want learning to be fun and we want to gamify and we want to add badges and stars and, you know, all the things in, in the world. I'm like, so you're giving people this wonderful feeling and you're dopamine hitting them, you know, all over the place, but they're not remembering anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but they had a really good time. So if your goal was engagement, great job. You know, you got that. Right. But if your goal was, was for someone to remember something, to implement it. How have you done that? It, it makes sense and certainly i've seen yeah i i've been involved in courses where all this gamification stuff has happened as well and uh, it's just interesting to see it may be increased engagement for a while but now it's kind of it's already passed and worn off it seems and uh, and you don't even hear so many people talking about gamification nearly as much in terms of course creation and the likes anyway there still are. And I say, you know, there are some phenomenal um, designers out there who are very, um, you know, very specifically working on gamification, but they're doing it with incredible intention and strategy. 
to their games. So they are, you know, they're using learning theory. They're using, some of them are, are using, um, you know, cognitive sciences to understand just those premises of what we were talking about. How do I build something that yes, it's fun and it's engaging, but I'm not just giving people dopamine hits that make them feel good because they're you know, playing a game. How am I scaffolding and building on the learning to right. do that? I mean, when we look, I, I think, um, you know, anybody who used to play, let, I'll take, for example, Super Mario, right? When, when Nintendo first came out, like talk about the ultimate learning, right? You didn't just play it once and give up if you didn't get to the princess. <laughs> you would go back time and time again and you would learn oh that mushroom thing is over there and if i go down this pipe like the amount of learning <laughs> and if we take the premises of that that have to you know for games that we have to go back and keep scaffolding building on that knowledge then gamification is a phenomenal tool when it's I've never used thought of it in those sorts of terms but yeah i mean when you put that it makes sense and that there's a level above the gamification that i've been aware of that uh um, is actually uh, much deeper and more beneficial. That's exciting. That's good to know about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now I know we we are a, a bit restricted on on time, as uh, you know, I'm keeping the shows un, under an hour these days. <laughs> um, but that's that's a good thing. It makes them a bit more, hopefully, a bit more digestible for people. Um, but I do want to ask uh, one, one last thing, sort of, in relation to course creation. I mean, is there an optimal mm -hmm. spacing then between? Um, elements of a program and is there an optimal like amount of weeks or days to run a program? I, you know, that's a loaded question because I think it really, it, ha it has to do with what your outcomes are. What are you trying right. to encode? You know, what are you trying to encode? You know, if you're trying to encode a certain behavior that might take a lot longer um, than it would a motor skill. So there is no, you know, necessarily a set time. Every, you know, people we've seen through um, MRI and fMRI uh, scans, you know, when we look at something like how is the brain changing? How is it physically changing when it's engaging in certain activity? Sometimes it can, you know, it takes three to five days, but other times it takes six to eight weeks. So... <laughs> And then it's a matter of, you know, what are the competing, the competing elements in your brain, right? So we know that when you are going into learn something and you've got the memories of something that's very similar to that, it's more challenging because the brain automatically defaults to the, I know that it's cool. I don't need to, I don't need to know this, or I see kind of the difference, but I'm always going to revert back to what I know. So then it becomes a longer learning process and a long, longer encoding process because you're competing against an existing memory. So right. there is no, you know, there is no one good answer for that. Are you supposed to, you know, if you practice, what is it? The 10,000, you do something 10,000 times, you become an expert at it. Yeah, well, probably. Great <laughs> 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 at what they do. They like, they practice. That the was time. the Markham Gladwell thing, right? 10,000. Yeah. Times, yeah. Like, well, it makes logical sense, you know, if I really wanted to be a phenomenal tennis player, I'm going to go and go on that court and start, you know, hitting, hitting things across the net. I'm mm. sure I'm going to get one's going to land and eventually at the end of the week, something I taught myself how to very poorly juggle, but it took me, I don't know, a couple of weeks because it's a motor skill. I remember you were uh, yeah, teaching us to juggle last time we spoke. Yeah. I gave up because I decided that the circus was I'm, I'm more I'm more of a flying trapeze kind of guy myself, you know. Yeah, I got to the level of mastery I was happy with. I'm like, I did it three times. Great. Yeah, I go to um, yeah, yeah. You don't need to go on America's Got Talent now or anything like that. So. 
Oh, well, maybe for something different, but juggling won't be that. <laughs> so we have a we have a comment from uh, Janice. I think there's a question in there as well for us. So let's uh, get this up on the screen. Uh, so Janice says, as a teacher, I've learned so much about how I teach and how much I've crammed into my courses. Now I have insight how my students learn and how I change that. Love the gamification term, pretty and feels good. But what did they learn? Yeah. Good, good way okay, to be thinking me, about it. Let me just look at this. Oh, Oops, wait, can I'll you... leave it back up on the screen for you. Awesome. Okay, first, Janice, thank you for being a phenomenal uh, teacher out in this world. What are they actually learning? <laughs> I guess you're going to have to try some a little bit of feedback and retrieval on that one. So, you know, if you really want to see if your students have gotten something out of a gamified, you know, engagement, then the only way that you're going to know that is through some sort of a retrieval practice that takes them out of the game and contextualizes it into the real life scenarios of what it is that you want them to use. So I'd say that's probably one of the your, your best routes there is if, if there was something very specific that they were supposed to learn through that game, remove it from the game and see if they can transfer it into a different if a, into a different context. Transfer transfer is going to be sort of your best means of being able to gauge whether or not they've learned it. Yeah. That's a great question. And thank you for being a wonderful teacher. <laughs> yeah, and, and thanks for tuning in to our, to our live stream as well. It's great to have yeah. some engagement on stream. That's one of the one of the great things about going live with the show is that it creates this possibility for people to come and join in the conversation and to ask questions and, and say the comments as well. So Janice, thank you. And uh, we'll see plenty more of that, I hope. Now, I want to, uh, want to start Putting things to a close uh, so that we keep it well within our within our time frame here as well. But Lauren, I, I love speaking to you. Um, I, I know I could <laughs> go could happily go hours, and we can just nerd out together and uh, and have a great time. It would be very self indulgent, but I know that people probably do want to find out more about you and and keep learning from you because I know you do regularly appear on podcasts. You you have a lot of your own content. You do talks and presentations and things as well. Where can people find out more about you? Okay, so um, something that I need to learn to do better is to keep my website up to date because it's definitely not. So, <laughs> um, you can check out the website. It kind of gives a, an overview, which is learningpirate.com. Um, currently, I am incredibly active on the newest and latest social media platform, Clubhouse. So um, I, have, I, I am one of the administrators of a clubhouse called Neuroplasticity. Um, we've got about 14,000 people uh, in the club thus far, and I'm usually on there weekly, and I'll be talking about all of this kind of stuff. Um, right. LinkedIn, very. I try to be as active as I can on LinkedIn and um, Instagram. So there's where you can find me. Um, I think I've, yeah, I've got so podcasts coming out all the time. Um, I've got, if you're in Australia, I'll be opening up a conference next week, um, the iDesign X conference. Yeah, but I, I'd say check LinkedIn. Um, I try to, to do that. Um, but I'm going to say, here's, here's where I want to end this as far as cognitive load goes and what I've learned about you know the use of social media. And this is something that I, I had a metacognitive moment myself this week. And it has to do with the pressure that I certainly felt, but to maintain your presence on social media and to maintain that engagement. And I realized my message when it comes to that and how people can find me is that when I really have something of value that I'm going to, that I will not, that I want to offer you, that's when you'll find me, but I'm not going to put something up just so you can see my face again. 
when, I, when I put something up, no, it's because I genuinely have something that's really great to share. <laughs> <laughs> we have a question. Janice says, thank you for the amazing collaboration. So much insight. I teach my students how to think about how they Yeah, Janice, yeah, please feel free to reach out. I'm happy to support any teacher during this time. So yeah, don't hesitate to connect and reach out. <laughs> that's excellent. I, I think I've already connected with you on Clubhouse and uh, I definitely want to uh, see if I can get into your group. If, it fit, if it's in my waking hours, I will definitely try and join in. If anyone wants to connect with me on there, uh, it's uh, at Johnny Ball. You can connect with That's the same for Twitter and for, uh, for Clubhouse. I'd be happy to connect with you there. Invite me to your rooms if you want. I'll come and share. If you want to be a guest on the show, uh, get in touch with me. LinkedIn is a great way to do that or uh, presentinfluence.com, come and connect with me there. And go and check out more about Lauren. I love speaking to Lauren. Lauren, we're gonna have you back on the show again in the future, definitely, because I love speaking to you. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely know that. We'll maybe, maybe we'll even do a, I have a bit of an idea about a bit of a panel, a neuroscience and learning kind of panel thing. I'm gonna see if we can pull that together in the future. And uh, yeah, yeah, that would, that would be really amazing. But in the meantime, thank you so much for coming and joining us today and sharing great information. It's a pleasure as always to speak with you. Likewise, have an amazing rest of your days. Yar. Yar, yeah, you are really ready. Whatever you're doing, get through the moments of Gur so you can get to the moments of Yar. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and consider sharing it with your friends as well so that we can help get points of change into the hands of anyone who is going to benefit and be able to use it to transform their lives. Coming soon on the show, a chat with Sunil Godsey about his book, Gut, talking about intuition and his science and investigation into intuition and why we should all be using it all the time and what happens and what goes wrong when we don't. I'll also be talking to my friend Sabiasachi Singupta about his book, What's Your Plan B? About making sure that you always are able to have the flexibility of a backup when things don't go the way you intend. And as he was a winner of an evaluations contest in Toastmasters, we'll be talking about giving feedback and how to do that effectively. So don't miss those shows coming up very soon on Points of Change. If you think you'd be a great guest on the show or you know someone who would, then please get in touch. The way to do that is to email me, john at presentinfluence.com. john at presentinfluence.com. I will look forward to hearing from you. Please tell me why you or your friend or the person you represent would be a great guest and why you'd like to come specifically on Points of Change. So all that remains for me to say is thank you for joining me. See you again next time.